0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. morning. Uh My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at Mundaring. Uh, I believe Glenn is in Darren preaching this morning. At least I hope he is, or else Darren's not going to have a sermon. <laughs> uh Right, well, we're uh, continuing our series in the book of Ezekiel, Uh, so if you've got your Bibles there, it's going to be helpful to have it open. We're up to chapter 25, and we're looking at chapter 25 all the way to chapter 32, Um, yeah, which is eight chapters. Uh, Cool. (laughs) Well, I don't know about you, right, but I always like it when someone gets what they deserve, you know, particularly if they're a bully, you know, it's always so satisfying when you see that annoying kid in your class finally get told off, or the coworker that constantly wastes their time and yours finally get caught by the boss, or when the criminal finally gets given the sentence that they deserve from the judge. You know, we all love it when when someone finally gets what's coming to them, which is exactly what these 8 chapters are about. So far in the book of Ezekiel, the spotlight has been on the nation of Israel. God has clearly said that because of their sin, they will be punished. The city of Jerusalem will fall to the Babylonians, and the nation of Israel will go into exile. The, the nation of Israel are getting what they deserve. But now the spotlight turns to the other nations. And if you've been traveling with us throughout this book then you'll have got the feeling that everything has been pretty depressing up until this point. It's all been about judgment, and it's all been about the seriousness of our sin and the consequences of what happens when we rebel against God. But from here on out, there's a shift. Before, it was kind of mostly judgment with a little sprinkling of hope. But from here to the end of the book, it's hope with a little sprinkling of judgment. There's still the fall of the city of Jerusalem in chapter 33, but as an Israelite reading this, there's definitely a change, because when God speaks about judgment, He's now not talking about Israel, He's talking about the surrounding nations. And for the nation of Israel, this is the moment when the bullies finally get what's coming to them. Now, we're not going to read all eight chapters, but I'm going to read chapter 25 just to help give us an idea of what these eight chapters are like and what they're about. So if you've got your Bibles, or it's on the screen, chapter 25. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against the Ammonites and prophesy against them. Say to them, hear the word of the sovereign Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Because you said, Aha, over my sanctuary when it was desecrated and over the land of Israel when it was laid waste and over the people of Judah when they went into exile. Therefore, I'm going to give you to the people of the east as a possession. They will set up their camps and pitch their tents among you. They will eat your fruit and drink your milk. I will turn uh, Rabbah into a pasture for camels and Ammon into a resting place for sheep." Then you will know that I am the Lord. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Because you have clapped your hands and stamped your feet, rejoicing with all the malice of your heart against the land of Israel, therefore I will stretch out my hand against you and give you as plunder to the nations. I will wipe you out from among the nations and exterminate you from the countries. I will destroy you and you will know that I am the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Because Moab and Seir said, Look, Judah has become like all the other nations. Therefore I will expose the flank of Moab, beginning at its frontier towns, Beth, Jammimoth, Baal, Meon, and Kirathaum, the glory of that land. I will give Moab, along with the Ammonites, the people of the east as a possession, so that the Ammonites will not be remembered among the nations. And I will inflict punishment on Moab. Then they will know that I am the Lord." This is what the sovereign Lord says. Because Edom took revenge on Judah and became very guilty by doing so. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says I will stretch out my hand against Edom and kill both man and beast. I will lay it waste, and from Teman to Dedan they will fall by the sword. I will take vengeance on Edom by the hand of my people Israel, and they will deal with Edom in accordance with my anger and my wrath. They will know my vengeance. Declares the sovereign Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Because the Philistines acted in vengeance and took revenge with malice in their hearts and with ancient hostility sought to destroy Judah. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says I am about to stretch out my hand against the Philistines and I will wipe out the Kerethites and destroy those remaining along the coast. I, I will carry out great vengeance on them and punish them in my wrath then they will know that I am the Lord when I take vengeance on them. And that continues for seven more chapters. There's kind of eight chapters of this, right, all up, and I'm not going to go through each little bit, but I'll just pick up some of the main ideas and themes that are in these chapters. But before we do that, let's just kind of step back and try to get a bird's eye view of what's going on here. And when I say bird's eye view, I mean that literally, a bird's eye view. Let's look at a map. Uh, Sorry, writing is a bit small there. I thought it was bigger on my computer. Anyways, uh, as Ezekiel pronounces these judgments on the surrounding nations, he kind of does it in a clockwise direction. Let's get our bearings though. Uh, In the north, we've got Israel, and in the south, We've got Judah. Uh, so if you remember the history, uh, the, the kingdom of, of Israel gets split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. Uh, the northern kingdom is kind of being kind of overtaken, kind of wiped out more or less by the Assyrians at this point in time, and all that we're left with is Judah down the south. Uh, now let me just explain the word Israel for a moment because it can be confusing. Whenever you read the word Israel in the Bible, it can refer to at least four different things. Uh, Firstly, the person called Jacob, uh, he gets a name change to Israel in, uh, that's supposed to say Genesis, chapter 32, verse 28. Uh, It can refer to the whole land, the kind of northern and southern kingdoms together, so before the kingdom splits, all of it is called Israel. Or Israel can refer to just the northern kingdom. Right, you see that there, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, or the word Israel can just refer to the people of Israel, whoever is left at whatever particular time uh, in in yeah in history. So, for example, in, in uh, the prophet Ezekiel is from the south, he's from Judah, so he we kind of talk about him as a Judean. But you could also say he's an Israelite because he came from the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, So hopefully that helps you or, you know, doesn't confuse you too much. The word Israel can refer to four different things. And the way to work out what it's talking about is simply context. There's no easy answers. Okay, let's keep going with the map. Uh, So you've got Jerusalem there in the south in Judah and then, uh, beginning with the other nations, kind of in a clockwise direction, you have this prophecy against Ammon. Have a prophecy against Moab, uh, and then down the south is Edom, Philistia, or the Philistines there on the coast. Uh, up north is Tyre, which is both a region and a city. Sidon, uh, the city in the north, and then Egypt uh, down the bottom of the map. So that hopefully that just gives you some idea. We're talking about the nations surrounding the people of Israel, uh, those set in opposition against them. Ezekiel uh, pronounces these judgments on their neighbors, and a key question that we have to ask whenever we come across these sorts of passages in the Bible is this. Who actually heard the messages? Did Ezekiel actually travel to those places? Uh, That's an important question, because there's no evidence to suggest that any of those nations heard what Ezekiel had to say. Ezekiel certainly didn't leave Babylon. He didn't go on a preaching to us throughout the Middle East. In fact, the only time in the Bible where a foreign nation kind of hears a prophecy about themselves is in the book of Jonah, and once in Jeremiah, where he sends someone off with a message to the Babylonians. But if you're sitting in Moab, You would never know that some random Judean prophet has spoken a prophecy against your nation. Which tells us that the primary audience for this is the Israelites. Although these prophecies are about the other nations, they're messages for Israel. It's meant to encourage them, help them to know that their bullies are finally going to get what's coming to them. Uh, Have a look with me if you go to Bibles chapter 28. Uh, verses 24 to 26. Chapter 28, verse 24. No longer will the people of Israel have malicious neighbors who are painful briars and sharp thorns. Then they will know that I am the sovereign Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says When I gather the people of Israel from the nations where they have been scattered, I will be proved holy through them in, uh, holy through them in the sight of the nations. Then they will live in their own land, which I gave to my servant Jacob. They will live there in safety and will build houses and plant vineyards. They will live in safety when I inflict punishment on all their neighbours who malign them. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God. Uh, That little passage is the halfway point in these chapters, and there's three things here that are important for us to grasp. Firstly, God doesn't have double standards. All sin, no matter how Uh, no matter who does it, no matter what we do, makes us guilty before God. The nation of Israel had broken their covenant with God, and so they were experiencing the covenant curses that they deserved. But that doesn't mean that the other nations get off scot-free. All sin, no matter who does it, makes us guilty before God. So when it comes to sin, don't think that we can just get a free pass because you've been really good for the last five days. Or it was just that one time. Don't think that we can get a free pass just because we help serve in church. Don't think that you get a free pass because you obeyed your parents this week. Don't think that you get a free pass because you give regularly to the church. God doesn't show favoritism, He doesn't have a double standard. All sin makes us guilty before God. Secondly, although God judges the other nations, just like he judges his own people, notice that they are still his people. Despite breaking their covenant promises with God, God will not break his promises with them. He's going to help them. Israel's neighbours have always been a problem, not just because they keep on fighting with each other, but because they keep on tempting Israel into sin. Those nations each had their own gods, right? The gods that they worshipped. And every time Israel got too close with them, they were pulled away from their own loyalty to their God. But now God is going to do what they should have done back in the book of Judges, and God is finally going to get rid of them. No longer will the people of Israel have malicious neighbors who are painful briars and sharp thorns. God will get rid of them so that they will not be a problem. And not only that, but God will gather his people back and put them into the land where they will live in peace and prosperity. And God does that for his name's sake. He will not be known as the God who forsakes his promises. You know, after 70 years in exile in Babylon, the people will come back to the land, But what we see when the people eventually return is that it's not the perfect picture that's painted here. The people don't get to kind of live in safety and build houses and plant vineyards. It's not that perfect picture. And that's because the true fulfillment of God's promises is only found in Jesus. In Jesus, we have been included in God's great plan for his people, and so when Jesus returns, he will renew this earth and remove all the sin and evil from it. And so we will have the peace and safety that God promises here. God is still committed to his plan, and he will see it through. And thirdly, for us to have peace and safety, that means that God has to destroy our enemies. What these chapters show us is that for salvation to be complete, God must destroy our enemies. And for the people of Israel back then, that meant the nations around them. You know, whenever God saves Israel in the Old Testament, it's always a picture of the full and final salvation that God achieves for us in Christ. And time and again, one of the key features is that God also destroys their enemies. You know, think about how God rescued his people out of Egypt. God gets his people out of Egypt, and that would have been enough. But instead, what does God do? God leads them to the Red Sea, and he deliberately leads them into a dead end, and then he sends Pharaoh after them. And so God tells Moses to part the sea, and the Israelites walk through on the dry ground, and the Egyptians follow, and then when the Israelites are out the other side... God drowns the Egyptians. And as you read the story, right, none of that needed to happen, except it did. Because when God saves his people, it's total and complete. And complete salvation involves the destruction of our enemies. And our biggest enemies are not... It's not the person who you don't get on with at work, our biggest enemies that we face is sin and death and Satan. Those Old Testament pictures are a reminder for us that God won't just save us from our sin and death and Satan. He's actually going to get rid of them fully and completely. So when it comes to sin, death, and Satan, these chapters actually give us a pretty good insight into all three So we're going to think about sin and Satan, and then we'll think about death at the end. The word Satan, uh, it's worthwhile knowing, is actually more of a title than a name. The word Satan means accuser. And it's important for us to know that so we don't import uh, all this misinformation into what we think about Satan. What Satan does is he accuses us before God. Satan is a snitch. Whenever we sin, he tells on us which is why he's called the accuser. And we're going to think about two of Satan's strategies to get us to sin. We're going to think about persecution and seduction. So persecution. The Philistines were always a problem for Israel. They had this kind of ancient hostility thing going on. Uh, they, They lived on the coast and were constantly fighting against Israel. And Satan used that enmity to lead Israel astray. See, when it comes to persecution, we've got two choices before us. Either we stay the course or we give up. And Israel often gave up. You know, for example, if you think back to the book of Judges, when Samson is born, the Israelites were ruled by the Philistines and they didn't even care. They'd stop calling out to God for help. The persecution of the Philistines had eventually worn them down and now there was almost no difference between the Philistines and the Israelites. And so what does God do? He raises up this this person called Samson to deliberately force a conflict between the nations, to rouse them out of their apathy. And just like that, Satan uses persecution to wear us down, to bring about our destruction like a roaring lion he wants to devour us. Uh, Thomas Brooks, who uh, wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, uh, wrote it in the 1600s. He writes this. Satan says, Do you not see that there are none in the world that are so vexed, afflicted, and tossed as those that walk more circumspectly and holily than their neighbours? They are a byword at home and a reproach abroad. Their miseries come in upon them like Job's messengers, one upon the neck of another, and there is no end of their sorrows and troubles. Therefore, says Satan, you were better to walk in ways that are less troublesome and less afflicted, though they be more sinful. For who but a bat- madman would spend his days in sorrow, vexation, and affliction, when it may be prevented by walking in ways that I set before him. You know, Satan says to us, You would be crazy to put up with all the trouble and persecution that comes from being a Christian, wouldn't you? Why don't you just give it all up? The great reminder from Ezekiel is that one day God will finally and completely rescue us from all persecution, just like he did for Israel back then, he will do for us in the future. So you take a look at the prophecy against the Philistines. It's there in chapter 25, uh, verse 15. This is what the Sovereign Lord says, Because the Philistines acted in vengeance and took revenge with malice in their hearts and with ancient hostility sought to destroy Judah. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I am about to stretch out my hand against the Philistines and I will wipe out the Kerithites and destroy those remaining along the coast. I will carry out great vengeance on them and punish them in my wrath. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I take vengeance on them. See, one day Satan won't get to use persecution as a means to cause us to sin. But until that day, we we need to be aware that Satan will use persecution to make us give up on God. And Thomas Brooks, he gives us seven remedies to counter this kind of thinking, uh, but I'm only going to mention two. Buy the book or borrow the book if you want to read the rest. So two things to counter Satan's tactic of persecution uh, while we wait for Jesus. Uh, Firstly, let's remember that all suffering that we face now is nothing compared to the judgment of God for our sin. See, God's judgment is far, far worse than any sort of persecution that we might face in this life. See, what does Jesus say? Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We should be more worried about the judgment of God than any suffering that we face in this life. Secondly, suffering is one of the things that God uses for our good and His glory. Brooks says that suffering is like a mirror. It shows us our pride and keeps us humble. Suffering humbles us and reminds us to keep clinging to Jesus. God uses suffering for our good to teach us to trust in Him. Now, when it comes to suffering and persecution, either we give up or we cling more tightly to him. There's more we could say about Satan's a tactic of persecution, but let's think about seduction. See, Satan dresses up sin so that it looks good and pleasing to the eye. He seduces us to, into thinking that everything's all okay. Brooks says this, Satan knows that if he should present sin in its own nature and dress, the soul would rather fly from it than yield to it. And therefore he presents it unto us, not in its own proper colours, but painted and gilded over with the name and show of virtue, that we may the more easily be overcome by it and take the more pleasure in committing of it. This is the strategy that Satan used in the city of Tyre. Tyre was a city uh, located just off the coast, and it was linked to the mainland with a causeway. Uh, It was like uh, the Hong Kong of the ancient world. It had everything going for it. All the other nations went to Tyre to trade and to swap goods. And in chapter 27, Tyre is described as, as perfect in beauty. Your dominion was on the high seas. Your builders brought your beauty to perfection. And then what follows is this kind of shipping manifest that describes everything that they had and where they got it from. But the problem was that what they had wasn't enough. They wanted more. Look at the start of chapter 26 with me. In the 11th month of the 12th year, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, because Tyre has said of Jerusalem... Aha, the gate to the nations is broken, and its doors have swung open to me. Now that she lies in ruins, I will prosper. See, when Babylon conquered Jerusalem, Tyre saw an opportunity to get more stuff. They weren't content with what they had, and so they grasped for more. And Satan always does that, doesn't he? He makes things look better than what they seem. Like a good fisherman, he hides the hook and shows us the bait. The glimmer of gold and their own pride blinded the people of Tyre from seeing the danger of profiting off the ruin of God's chosen people. Well, before we get to the strategies against Satan's seduction, let me just point out the date that Ezekiel uses there in verse 1. He mentions that he received this prophecy on the first day of the 11th month of the 12th year, which means two things. Uh, Firstly, that Ezekiel received this vision one month after the fall of Jerusalem, which doesn't happen until chapter 33. And secondly, that this vision and many of the other ones in this section are not in chronological order. And that shouldn't really worry us, right? There are many times throughout the Bible when things aren't written in chronological order. classic example of that is the Gospels, right? The things that Matthew, Mark, Luke and John wrote down often weren't written in the order that they happened in. And that's true here as well. And that's because the Bible is more concerned about using these stories to teach us something about God and his world than about getting the chronology right. Or if I can put it this way... The Bible is more concerned about theology than chronology. But that doesn't make what the Bible says untrue, or that Ezekiel is trying to pull the wool over our eyes. He doesn't try to hide the chronological order of these prophecies. What it means for us, though, is simply that we read the Bible with our eyes open and our brains engaged, aware of what the author is trying to teach us. Okay, back to uh, Satan and his tactic of seduction. The best strategy against Satan's power of seduction is to remember that sin is always bittersweet. You know, it tastes good, but it always sours. Sin is always accompanied by guilt and shame and bitterness and sorrow. You know, sin always promises more than it gives. Sin always costs us more than we want to pay, Sin always takes us further than what we want to go. And sin always leaves us there for longer than what we want to stay. You know, Satan offers us the thrill of keeping secrets from our parents, but hides the guilt that it brings. He offers us the joy of being accepted by the cool group at school, but hides the moral cost that having those relationships will bring. He offers us the work promotion, but hides the cost it will bring to the family. He offers us the pleasures of adultery, but hides the pain of broken relationships that follow. He offers us everything we might want with a credit card or a mortgage, but hides the gospel restrictions that might bring. He offers us a quick solution to our kids' disobedience, but hides the fear that it brings into the relationship. Just like after pay, Satan uses many different lures to trick and trap us so we buy now and pay later. Sin is always bittersweet. Well, we've thought about sin and Satan. Let's think about Death. Throughout these chapters, there's a number of references to the realm of the dead, but Ezekiel says a lot about it in chapter 33. So, if you got your Bibles, I come to chapter 33. Uh, sorry, 32. Chapter 32, and this is the final prophecy uh, that that ne- that Ezekiel speaks um, about the other nations. So, if you got Bibles, there, Ezekiel 32, verse 17. In the twelfth year, on the fifteenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, wail for the hordes of Egypt and consign to the earth below both her and the daughters of mighty nations, along with those who go down to the pits. Say to them, Are you more favoured than others? Go down and be laid among the uncircumcised. They will fall among those killed by the sword. The sword is drawn. Let her be dragged off with all her hordes. From within the realm of the dead, the mighty leaders will say of Egypt and her allies. They have come down and they lie with the uncircumcised, with those killed by the sword. What these verses are saying and what this chapter is saying is that the nations will be judged and they will go to the place of the dead. Ezekiel speaks there about the Egyptians being laid among those who are uncircumcised. Which is a bit strange because Egyptians, also, uh, Egyptians practiced circumcision. But circumcision was one of the things that marked out Israel as God's special people. And so Ezekiel is using it here as a metaphor to speak about how these nations are excluded from belonging to God. And that little detail about circumcision is a good reminder for us that we need to be careful with how we read the Bible. Not all of it is meant to be taken literally. This, this passage isn't meant to be a play-by-play description of what happens when you die. It's meant to encourage the Israelites that God will deal with the sin of the nations and send them to where they belong. See, on the one hand, right, you read this passage and, and, and it kind of seems like death is a good thing. The nations were finally going to get what they deserved. But death is always a thief and a robber. Ezekiel was to wail, to lament for Egypt. See, death is an intrusion into our reality that has no place in God's world. Even if we think that someone deserves what they get, many of us, if not all of us, would perhaps hesitate to to say that someone deserves to die. To die and to be excluded from the love of God and experience the eternal punishment for sin is a terrible thing. But thankfully, Jesus has dealt with sin and Satan and death. The penalty for sin has been paid for. Jesus died on the cross. The power of sin has been broken. Jesus has given us his spirit. And death has been put on notice because Jesus rose from the dead. Although we still sin, although Satan is still powerful, although we still die... The death and resurrection of Jesus means that their time is almost up. You know, when we're getting ready to leave the playground, we say to our kids, last play, which means that they have one more chance, one last play, to do whatever they want on the playground before we head home. And for sin and Satan and death, this is their last play. This is their last opportunity to muck around in God's world before it's all over. If you like, you can draw it out like this. See, we expect sin and Satan and death to be finished and done with at the end of time. But with the death and resurrection of Jesus, the end has actually already started. The end has been split in two. The end has already begun. And so we live in in this overlap of the ages, this now but not yet this moment in time, where, where, where sin and death and Satan ha- are having their last play, and that diagram is helpful because it's both an encouragement and a warning. It's encouraging because it reminds us that Jesus' death and resurrection were decisive acts that will bring down the current regime. Death had the monopoly, and then some, and then somebody suddenly escaped from death. And what happened to Jesus will also happen to us. At the moment, death is just having its last play. But one day, Jesus will call time and that will be that. And so we look forward to that day and we ask Jesus to return quickly to deal with our enemies once and for all. But there's also a warning here as well. Because whenever we see death, it's a reminder that we need to repent before it's too late. See, when we die, when we go to the realm of the dead, it will be too late to change our minds. In Luke 13, Jesus talks about two situations where people have died. The first group were murdered, and the second group were killed when a building fell over. And Jesus says, "...unless you repent, you too will perish." Jesus says that whenever we see death and suffering, it should be like a little app notification reminding us that we need to repent before it's too late. You know, one day we will die, and if we aren't trusting in Jesus, then we will face the same fate as the Egyptians, the Assyrians, and the Elamites, and all the rest of Ezekiel 32. We will go to the place of the unrighteous dead, cut off from God's covenant and blessing. And the only one that can rescue us from a place like that is the person who has died and been raised to life. Jesus has already died and been raised. He's the only one that can rescue us from death. His death brings us forgiveness from sin and his resurrection gives us certainty of life after death. And his spirit helps us now to stand against the attacks of the devil. There is no other saviour that has so completely saved us. Let me pray for us. Father God, we pray that you would send the Lord Jesus back to us quickly. Father, would Jesus come and rescue us uh, completely and finally from the ravages of sin, death, and Satan. And Lord, as we long for that, but also wait patiently for his return, Would you help us to keep living by faith, trusting in you, clinging to you. Help us to be putting sin to death by the power of the Spirit, we pray. Amen.